What is up, ASM? It is so good to be back with you guys. We are in John chapter 11, it's the second half, so verses 45 through 12, 11. If you haven't read that yet, go ahead, grab a Bible and pause this video, do that, and come back. Okay, now that you've read it, hopefully you have a pretty good understanding of what happened. Now, think back and remember three characters from the story. I guess technically there's four because of Jesus, but remember these three characters, right? The first one is Caiaphas. He's the high priest. We met him, we met him early. Uh, second, Judas. You might have already known him. He's the traitor, the one that betrays Jesus. And third, uh, Mary, right? So these three characters, I want us to remember them as we're talking about this. Think about how they thought, interacted, reacted to Jesus, uh, and just their relationship with him. That's kind of how I want us to help understand this story, the meaning behind it. Why is this in the Bible? Why is this recorded for us? All right, so where are we in the, in the bigger story? John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, that's just, that's a crazy miracle. That's huge. That's insane. And it spawns two really big events. They're kind of happening at the same time. Maybe it's a little bit one after another. I don't know. But the first thing that we are introduced uh, with is the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin is what they're called. They've gathered all the leaders and they are coming up with an official plan to get Jesus executed, to execute him themselves, right? And that's a little bit of a change. It's different. It's actually a big change where before they were kind of banking on the crowds to do it for them, but now they are saying, this is a big deal. We need to handle this, right? This is what they say in verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation, right? So what are they saying? Okay, they're afraid, right? The Jewish leaders are afraid of the fact that Jesus may rock the boat too much, and they've kind of gotten to fly under the radar in Rome, right? They can still practice religious freedom, which not everyone in Rome could. You had to follow the Roman religion. But the Romans let the Jews do it. And they're afraid that if Jesus rocks the boat too much, the Romans are going to take notice and shut it down, right? That probably means they're afraid for their lives, but also they're afraid for their power, right? So now we pick it up, Caiaphas, all right, remember him. He enters the picture, verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, right? He starts condescending. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you, that one man die for the people, then the whole nation perish. He goes on. He says, he did not say this on his own, right? John says, excuse me, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest Caiaphas that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one, so that so from that day on, they plotted to take his life, right? Okay, so this is the explanation of why are they doing what they're doing. Well, it's because Caiaphas, who was the high priest, he's, he's kind of like the head of the, the Jewish faith, right? 
he had prophesied that Jesus needed to die for them. And this is, the, this is almost just irony written by John, right? He knows what he's doing here. Caiaphas is right. Jesus does need to die for the Jews. He needs to die for everyone. But Caiaphas just doesn't realize how he's right, right? This is kind of like, there's those memes, right? Task failed successfully. This is what it is. Caiaphas, his task, he failed it successfully. Jesus needs to die. Jesus did need to die for all of us, for the Jews and Gentiles. We're Gentiles because we're not Jews. Everyone. And when Caiaphas is talking about, in this part, the scattered children of God, he thinks that the Jews that are scattered all over, not just in Israel, but scattered all over the world because of what had happened over the, the previous uh, hundreds of years of history. But in reality, what is actually happening is Jesus needs to die for the scattered children us. We are his children. If we have faith in him, that he is our savior, the Messiah, we are his children. We're the scattered children. And he needs to die so that we can become one. He did need to die. That's what happened. So Caiaphas is right. He just doesn't realize it. He doesn't realize why he's right. Instead, what he cares about is that we need to kill Jesus to maintain our power, our authority, and our safety, right? That's what he's after. Man, He's just so close to the truth that he doesn't quite see it. And this is one of the beautiful things about Scripture is that God gives us evidence of the past, of how he works, and how he's working in this moment. Genesis, the story of Joseph. If you were, if you were with us in, in the past year, uh, you might have studied this with us. But Genesis 50, when Joseph faces his brothers who sold him into slavery— that, that originally they, they wanted him dead. This is what he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And at that time, that was foreshadowing for us for Jesus, and we just wouldn't have noticed it. But in this moment, even more so, Man, God was not surprised by the evil plans of Caiaphas and, and his other buddies on the Sanhedrin. He wasn't, oh no, I need to pivot and adjust to this. He knew it all along. It was actually according to his plan that Jesus needed to die, that they would seek to kill him because he was the sacrificial lamb. He died on the cross for our sins that we might have life. That is Jesus' role. And that's actually the role that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are playing in that, and they just don't even know it, that their evil, selfish desires are actually a part of God's good plan. By the way, as an aside, out of all of this, they also decide later on, we see it in, in chapter 12 at the end, they decide that they need to kill Lazarus because Lazarus is living proof of Jesus' miraculous life-giving power, right? Because Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. That's what just happened. And, and they are looking to kill Lazarus because he's the example. Everyone's coming to see him because they want to see the guy that Jesus rose from the dead. And there's actually a, a little bit of an important thing to notice here is that they would rather destroy the evidence of Jesus' good works than be changed by them. And that actually, oof, that should be a little bit convicting to us, right? They're looking at the good things that Jesus has done, how he's provided, how he's a miracle worker. He is clearly the son of God. And they want to turn the other way, actually worse than turn the other way, they want to destroy that 
destroy the proof of that and turn the other way so that they can confirm that they are right, that they can serve their own desires. Man, in what ways do we do that? Oof. We're not even done, right? So we're, we're talking about Lazarus now. So Lazarus and, and Martha and Mary, right? So I didn't mention Lazarus and, and Martha, but they're a part of the story. They are having a big party for Jesus, right? Because Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. They want to throw a banquet, a feast, a party to, to honor him and celebrate that, that their friend, that Lazarus is back. Man, they want to celebrate Jesus for who he is. It says this at the start of chapter 12, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Right? We've seen Martha and Mary appear before in other parts of the Gospels. If you want to read those, you, you can look at them. It'll give you a better understanding of who these friends and followers of Jesus are. But Martha is the one that uh, is putting her gifts to work, that she's serving Jesus because she, she knows she can plan and prepare and make this food. And by the way, back then, it's not as simple as just running to, to Chipotle catering and getting a bunch of food. It's an all-day process making your dinner for yourself. And so imagine a big party. This is a big undertaking, right? This is a really big deal. Uh, and this beautiful act by Mary happens. And this is where I really want to sit for the rest of our time here. It is Mary just displays her love, her affection, her appreciation for Jesus. And how does she do it? Well, she does it in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. So let's read it and then let's think about it and understand it. Uh, in verse 3, then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. That's what nard is, an expensive perfume. And she poured it on Jesus' feet and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Okay, so if we picture this happening, literally, you know, pouring perfume on his feet, we're, we're probably very confused. I, I know I definitely would be. Uh, and so this is just weird. This is culturally different than what we're used to. Uh, what this really is, is, like I said, love and devotion. That perfume, which we'll see in, in the very next verse once we get to it, is actually extremely expensive. It's like a year's wages. It's a lot of money on that perfume. That, that's something that is uh, either potentially a family heirloom or, or maybe the three of them and their friends, more people had to pool money together in order to buy this uh, as a gift for Jesus. Whatever it is, this is very expensive. And so by using it in this way of, in particular, washing Jesus' feet, Mary, we, we know, we see Jesus' example of how he washed the disciples' feet. Mary uh, subjecting herself to be at Jesus' feet, pouring his perfume on his feet, wiping it with her hair, all of that. All of that is her own humiliation, uh, and not in a bad way. She's humbling herself. She's putting herself at the feet of, of her who she knows to be Jesus, the Son of God, her Savior, her Lord. She recognizes that. And especially in this moment, out of gratitude and love, he, he has risen Lazarus from the dead, and this is a moment for her that she wants to pour out that love and appreciation to him, that the fear, the, the worry about the cost and, and how people will perceive her, all of that goes out the window because she is just there with her Savior and she wants to worship him. There's another side to this, and this is the next, next part of the story. We don't necessarily, she doesn't understand fully what's happening 
and we, we get a glimpse into Judas, again, who we know will betray Jesus. And John, by the way, uh, hints this, uh, not hints it, he gives it away, right? John kind of just spoils the end of the story that Judas was going to betray Jesus. But he's kind of including some snark here almost towards Judas, right? It says in verses 4 and 5, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, way to bury the lead there, John, objected, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages, right? That's how we know it's so expensive. And we see this, and we actually may kind of have a similar thought right? If we hadn't sat there and gone into how Mary had this deep love and devotion to Jesus, if we saw this happen, we might go, man, that's a waste of money, right? Judas seems to be making a pretty fair argument. Jesus teaches that we're supposed to love the poor, right? Care for the poor, give to them, give freely. Judas seems to be making a good argument, although, of course, we have to remember Jesus knows Judas' heart, right? He knows that Judas is the one that will betray him, and the truth John reveals Judas's real intentions, right? He did not say this because he cared about the poor, Judas didn't, but because he was a thief, right? As a keeper of the money bag, that was his job with the disciples. He kept the money for them, you know, as they needed to buy food and, and lodging and things like that as they're traveling. He was the one that kept it, right? He's kind of like the accountant or the banker. He used to help himself. Judas helped himself to what was put into it right? Judas was skimming off the top, keeping money for himself, stealing literally from Jesus and his disciples, his friends too, by the way. And man, there's a couple things that that we can think about here. Uh, One is how many times have you, how many times have I, man, I, I know I've done this. How many times have we said something that we know is the right answer, right? It's the right response, but we've done it because it's selfish motivation, right? Think about that. Judas gave the right answer. Why wasn't this money given to the poor? The desire to give money to the poor is great and honorable and God-honoring, but it was done with the wrong motivation. And by the way, Jesus responds. We're going to see his response here that is very strong. Jesus' response is, leave her alone. To Judas, he says, leave her alone it was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will, not, you will always have the poor, excuse me, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Okay, so this is, again, partially why Judas is wrong. Judas is wrong because he has his selfish desire to t- actually take some of the money for himself, but also he just has a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus, of his time here on earth, and what he's supposed to do with that, right? Jesus says, leave her alone uh, in a couple of ways. Leave her alone, one, because you will not always have me. Leave her alone because you will always have the poor. That's a reference back to Deuteronomy 15.11. By the way, that's not Jesus being uh, hard-hearted to the poor or lack of care for the poor. He actually is encouraging, give freely to the poor. You will have the rest of your life to give and care for the poor, but you will not always have me. And lastly, Leave her alone because you do not get in the way of someone and their deep love and worship of me, right? There's a couple of things here. We need to back up. Look at our three characters, Caiaphas, Judas, and Mary, right? We've seen a little bit of how they interact. We've seen some of their motivations. It's obvious. Mary is the one that, that loves and honors Jesus. But starting at Caiaphas, right, he has a hard heart. He's 
worried about his power of maintaining control. And also, again, with that hard heart, he is so unwilling to be given over to the will of God, what God is teaching him, that he will look at the evidence of who Jesus is and what he does and seek to destroy it instead of be changed by it. Man, think about this for ourselves. Maybe we can see ourselves at times in our lives, or maybe for you right now, that you're in a place where you are like Caiaphas, where you're mad at God over something, something that you feel he did wrong, that you were wronged by him, or he neglected you. Whatever it is, maybe, what, what is that? I encourage you, share that with someone. Don't, don't just bury it. Don't just try to hide it from other people because you're afraid of how they'll judge you. Talk about it, but don't just speak angrily. Have a real conversation with someone that you know that follows Jesus, that loves Jesus, and say, hey, this happened to me. How can you love a God? And honestly ask this question. You have to, you have to prepare yourself to ask this, honestly, not just be looking for a fight, but how can you love and follow a God even though this happened to me? How can you think he's still good? Have that conversation. That's where Caiaphas is at, right? He's not there having that conversation, but he's looking to hold on to his power. He's hard-hearted. He's turning away from what God is doing. So don't be the same way. Look for answers. Look for truth. Another one, Judas, right? Our next. Judas is powered by his selfish ambition and greed, looking for money. Uh, and his great sin here is, yes, that greed, but it is challenging, trying to get in the way of how others are honoring and worshiping Jesus, right? And this one, I, I feel so convicted by. In what ways do we, have I judged how someone else worships Jesus, thinking either that's wasteful or that's foolish, that's not right? Ask yourself, do you do that? Do you judge people for how they worship, how they honor Jesus, how they serve him, thinking that's foolish, that's a waste of time, that's a waste of money. But for us, I'm going to give a spoiler here, that's wrong. It's not right for us to look at someone and in their love and devotion where they're giving everything to Jesus just because we don't feel the same way about how they're doing it, right? Throw out the fact that Judas was the one that was going to betray Jesus. He would still be wrong for saying she should have sold that perfume instead of wasting it on you, Jesus, right? We, it's not our place to say someone is wasting something when they're doing it out of pure intention to honor him. So be, we should be convicted by that, of in what ways do we challenge, get in the way of people and how they worship Jesus. And, and lastly, Mary, her place. She is the one that we should strive to be like in this story of having a love so great for Jesus that she worships him as he ought to right? Or as, as he ought to deserve, excuse me. She goes so far as to humiliate and humble herself, elevate him, spend freely of her time, money, and pride, by the way, in order to worship and love Jesus. She is the one that we should be pursuing a, a life that she modeled, right? We should be doing that with every part of our lives. So here's just a couple questions uh, as we close. One, uh, thinking like Judas, what is one way that you've judged someone for how they worship Jesus? And secondly, what does loving Jesus like Mary look like for you individually? What does it look like for you to give sacrificially and be at the feet of Jesus to worship him? And 
this is a challenging passage. There's a lot here. Again, it's culturally different, but but there are these are the truths that we can take away, uh, and I hope you guys uh, can can pursue a life where you worship Jesus in the way Mary does. And have a great week, and hope to see you guys back. If you haven't come back to ASM, we hope to see you soon. Uh, we're going to be heading outside for the summer, so it's going to be a fantastic time on Wednesday nights. Make sure, uh, try to come as best as you can. We'd love to see you there. Thanks.